Hello, I'm Sandy Burnett, back with another of my great moments in classical music here on RTE Lyric FM. Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro, Le Nozze di Figaro, is the subject of this week's programme. One of the best-loved operas in the repertoire today, charming, tuneful, reassuring and cosy. It comes round an opera house schedules with all the regularity of an old friend. But that enduring success is something which is in many ways quite surprising. And during the course of this programme, I'm going to be examining how Figaro became an unusual success story. From its edgy roots in a stage play in pre-revolutionary France, it was reworked as an opera buffa and first performed at Vienna's Burgtheater on the 1st of May, 1786, by an in-house troupe of Italian performers, charting an unlikely journey across national boundaries along the way. And the other thing I want to talk about is the way Figaro is reinterpreted for the stage in the many contemporary productions that take place all over the world these days. Is it fine to modernise the story and put our 21st century take on things? How does that change our perception of the story itself and all that takes place in a mad 24 hours? Or, as the title of the original French play puts it, Une folle journée. Journée ou le mariage de Figaro is still often performed in France to this day, and it's the comic creation of Pierre Beaumarchais. Born in 1732 as the son of a clockmaker, he was presented at court in 1754 and increasingly made himself part of the furniture, marrying into power and influence and changing his name, teaching music to the king's daughters, and travelling abroad as a diplomat and spy. Beaumarchais had always had a knack for writing comic sketches, but he gradually developed this into something more substantial, full-length plays for the theatrical stage. The character of Figaro appears in at least three of his plays, The Barber of Seville, The Marriage of Figaro, and a later one that no one's ever heard of called The Guilty Mother. Both in the Beaumarchais and Mozart versions of The Marriage of Figaro, Figaro's the valet to Count Almaviva, who's getting bored in his marriage, has got his eye on Figaro's fiancée Susanna, and is thinking of reviving the law of droit de seigneur so that he can enjoy her before Figaro's wedding night. It's edgy stuff, and a notable feature of the play is Figaro's fifth-act tirade against his callous and entitled boss, and by extension against the ruling classes in general. No, my lord count, you shan't have her, Figaro roars from the stage. Just because you are a great nobleman, you think you are a great genius. Nobility, fortune, rank, position, 
how proud they make a man feel. What have you done to deserve such advantages? No wonder that the authorities had a problem with what Beaumarchais had written and that it waited so long to get its first performance. Written by about 1778, it took another six years for the play to make it past the all-important censors, and that was only after Louis XVI himself had personally intervened. Both the king and Marie-Antoinette were big fans of the play, despite the revolutionary stirrings in the plot. In Mozart's operatic version, that side of the story is most clearly heard in Save Vol Ballare, in the first act when Figaro realises what the Count has in mind as far as Susanna is concerned. No longer is he prepared to tug the forelock to his master. Figaro comes across as determined and menacing. So you want to dance, Count Almaviva. In that case, I'll make you dance to my tune. Whatever everyone's reservations might have been about Figaro the play, when it finally opened, it was a runaway success. The first night took place at the Théâtre Français on the 27th of April 1784, and the play ran for 68 performances, which made it the most successful French play of that century. An English version was put on at Covent Garden in London that December, and over in Vienna, the play came to Mozart's attention. He passed it on to his librettist, Lorenzo da Ponte, who created an opera libretto out of it in six weeks. The play had, in fact, been banned in Vienna, but da Ponte removed almost all of the political references 
recrafted the story in elegant Italian and got the green light for Mozart to get to work. What exactly da Ponte and other Italians were doing in Vienna in the first place is an interesting story in itself. Very recently, in 1783, Emperor Joseph II had founded an Italian opera troupe which had put on performances of opera buffa or that particularly Italian strain of comic opera. Approaches went out to the very best singers on offer. To name but two, Nancy Storace, a stunning soprano and star of the Teatro San Samuele in Venice, who was still in her teens, and Francesco Benucci, the leading buffo bass from that same theatre. Both Storace and Bonucci came to Vienna on salaries of 40,000 florins a year. To give you an idea, that was about ten times what Mozart received for writing the score of The Marriage of Figaro. Bonucci took the title role and Storace was the original Susanna. A third singer to mention, who created the roles of both Don Basilio and Don Curzio, was the Irish tenor Michael Kelly. His memoirs offer a fascinating glimpse of what it was like to move in the brilliant artistic circles of Vienna and the northern Italian states, and to have men like Mozart as your friends. One evening, for example, Kelly dropped in to see Mozart, as you do, just as he was writing the Act Three duet for the Count and Susanna, and the two men sang it together while the ink was still wet on the page. A source of understandable pride for Michael Kelly, who wrote... A more delicious morceau never was penned by man. It's true, it's a magic moment in the score and an important point in the plot. Susanna pays a visit to the lustful Count, saying she's agreed to an assignation with him in the garden. He's surprised and delighted with this apparent change of heart, unaware that the Countess and Susanna are setting him up to catch him out. And what makes this such a special moment in the score is that you can hear the subtly shifting emotions of the pair, remorse, passion and exhilaration from him, flirtatiousness, charm and forgetfulness from her, reflected in Mozart's music every step of the way.
From a troubled recitative to a blissful duet, Mozart skillfully directs the comedy both on the stage and below it. Even if Count Almaviva doesn't realise he's being set up, we certainly do in the audience, thanks to what the orchestra is telling us. Cheerful quavers from a bassoon paired in octaves with first violins being just one comic example. Mozart's subtle and flexible writing goes hand in glove with the dramatic approach of his librettist. This was the first of his three collaborations with Da Ponte. Don Giovanni was to follow the next year and Così Fantutti in 1790. And even at that early stage of their relationship, Da Ponte knew they were onto something special and making operatic history. When the libretto first came to be published, Da Ponte put this in the preface. In spite of every effort to be brief, the opera will not be one of the shortest to have appeared on our stage, for which we hope sufficient excuse will be found in the variety of threads from which the action of this play is woven, the vastness and grandeur of the same, the multiplicity of the musical numbers that had to be made in order not to leave the actors too long unemployed, to diminish the vexation and monotony of long recitatives, and to express with varied colours the various emotions that occur. But above all, in our desire to offer, as it were, a new kind of spectacle to a public of so refined a taste and understanding. In all of Figaro, there's only one aria in a minor key, Barbarina's little cavatina at the start of Act Four. Everything else sticks to the major, even when Mozart's describing the most profound sorrow the Countess's Cavatina at the start of Act Two, for example, which is one of the most moving passages of the piece, is resolutely in F major. In the Barber of Seville, the marriage of Figaro prequel, so to speak, she had been the light-hearted Rosina who married her Count in the end. But with the passing years, she realises that his affections have moved on to many other younger women. She appears in the play's first act. But in a masterstroke from Mozart and Aponte, the opera doesn't introduce her until the curtain rises on Act Two, and she sings this aria, a masterpiece of restraint and dignity, despite all her heartbreak.
pour, O love, some consolation onto my grief, on my sighs. Either return my beloved to me, or else let me die. What makes the second act of Figaro so special is the narrative arc, which leads us from that sombre start through to a finale featuring a stage packed with characters and a comic imbroglio which is laugh-out-loud funny. Together with Figaro and Susanna, the Countess devises the trap of luring the Count to a midnight rendezvous with a pretend Susanna. They're having fun dressing up the page by Carabino in women's clothes when the Count unexpectedly knocks on the door. Carabino rushes to hide in the dressing room. The Count, who's convinced that his wife has a man in there, disappears to get some tools to force the door open. By the time he gets back, Susanna has taken Carabino's place and Carabino's jumped out of the window. So far, so good, and the Count is appeased. Until the gardener appears in a rage saying that someone has leapt from the window and crushed his carnations. Figaro, who comes in, has to pretend that it was him developing a limp very quickly. And if that weren't enough, he then learns his marriage is off due to legal complications. Mozart and Da Ponte have got the comic pressure cooker bubbling up wonderfully. So how has this great story been set on stage in productions over the years? In a new production which opened the 2014-15 season at the Metropolitan Opera New York, Richard Eyre transplanted the action to a country estate in Seville in the 1930s. So the right geographical context for the story and an updating which doesn't depart from the original too far. Almaviva's set-up here still smacks of old-school feudalism. 
Another subtle shift in setting came from David McVicker, who set his 2006 Covent Garden production in a chateau in France just before the Revolution of 1830, with plenty of class tension there as the whole household is drawn into the complications of the plot. Sven-Erich Bechtolf, on the other hand, updated the action to the present day for his production for the Zurich Opera House. Count Almaviva is, wait for it, a car salesman who has his living quarters above the showroom with Figaro as his business manager. When the assignations in the garden take place, they're all captured on closed-circuit television. One last production to mention is by the ever-provocative Peter Sellers. His DVD version for Decca elevates the action to Trump Tower in Manhattan, where the whole story plays out on the 52nd floor. Figaro's a chauffeur, Susanna is a hotel maid, Marcellina is a Manhattan socialite, and Basilio is a gossipy music executive dressed in leathers. So a variety of approaches there, but the question arises, what right does a director have to depart from the original 18th century setting? Why not just stick to the original? In a sense, though, every retelling of the story is an interpretation, and the same goes for the operatic adaptation in the first place. When da Ponte and Mozart sat down to create their opera, they consciously left out much of the political content because it didn't interest them. That's borne out by Mozart's diaries. It's striking that although Mozart lived through the start of the French Revolutionary era, he never makes any mention of it in his surviving correspondence, the complete opposite of Beethoven, for example. No, what Mozart wanted to get across is the very nature of love and how affairs of the heart can make us lose the plot and act like fools. That's the core of the matter. And as far as Figaro is concerned, it's the relationships that really matter rather than the staging. Directors and producers have every right to reinterpret the original as long as Mozart's characters come first. <laughs>